Eli, don't forget us when you're famous. <laughs> and I don't say that jokingly. Uh, if you watched any of the American Idol, uh, the guy that was runner-up is from Dallas, Georgia. He used to sing in a children's choir of a friend of mine. And uh, just about everybody we know up there turned out a couple of weeks ago and flooded Dallas and they had a big parade. And uh, if you saw the finale, the boy is not only talented, but he's very smart uh, because he started dating the other girl who actually won. And uh, so he said, I won either way, uh, which he's right. Uh, and so Eli, when, when you are at that pinnacle and, and the God of your heels uh, has blessed you in the talent and recognition of what God has given you, you don't forget the little people, okay? Uh, this morning I want you to turn to Ecclesiastes 7. And it's a good segue into what I want to preach to you this morning. As we continue in looking at the laboratory of life in Ecclesiastes, and you'll have to pardon me, I was going to finish my PowerPoint this morning, um, but my computer decided to update, and computers don't do what you want to do. They, they're like two-year-olds. They do what they want. And so you're going to get it old school. It's good. We had hymns, and we're going to have no PowerPoint in the message, but we're going to worship. Our focus is on him. Great music, Matt. I love those songs. Thank you, LaDonna, uh, for uh, pinch hitting and doing such a great job. Man, wonderful grace of Jesus, uh, greater than all our sin and shame. Ecclesiastes 7 in the first 10 verses, the word better is used eight times. Eight times in just 10 verses, the word better is used. Now, what does better mean? Better. It's one of those words that's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? Well, I, uh, I just Googled the term, what is better, period, or question mark. Nothing, what is better... I didn't put what is better than this or that. I just put what is better. Well, it's kind of obvious that Eli playing and singing is better than the preacher trying to do it. That's real obvious. Uh, but here's some really neat things. I want you to hear this list. I don't agree with all of them, but everybody has an opinion, right? So just go with me on this. If you agree with the statement, say amen if you don't. Say, oh, me, or just don't say anything. First one, crunchy peanut butter is better than creamy. Love is better than lust. Work is better than talent. Coaches, work is better than talent. Talent don't hurt, but work overcomes talent when it won't work. Crunchy Cheetos are better than puffy. Tater tots are better than french fries. Almond joys are better than mounds. Hope is better than cynicism. Dogs are better than cats. Amen! I'm sorry, Christy. Summer is better than winter. 
This thing just jumped the tracks. I mean, they jumped the shark. Waffles are better than pancakes? No. The violin is better than both piano and guitar. Transparency is better than tricks. Anything is better than Walmart. That wasn't the question. Listen, bacon is better than almost anything. Coffee is better than tea. Y'all grow up one day. Has-beens are better than could-have-beens. This morning I want to preach on what is better. What really is better? As we look at Ecclesiastes, and let's have fun. Today is the the day before Memorial Day. And let me reiterate to you, tomorrow is not Veterans Day. Veterans Day is November 11th at 11 a.m. It's the 11th hour of the 11th month, uh, 11th day of the 11th month. That's when peace fell over uh, World War I and uh, Armistice Day, and uh, it became known as Veterans Day. I believe Memorial Day in its intent was for soldiers who lost their lives, but especially in this day, and this church ought to really embrace this because of all the first responders we have serving. A Savannah police officer lost his life serving his country. I think tomorrow's for men like that. I think it's for women who have served faithfully, not just in the military, but in, uh, as a police officer or, you know, ambulance drivers have lost their lives, uh, paramedics, people who uh, serve us as EMS on helicopters that have crashed, people who serve day in, day out, who have given their lives uh, for our freedom. That is what Memorial Day is about. And so we remember. But as we do, I think it's very poignant that we find ourselves in this text, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. He starts off in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. And it's really a play on words because the Hebrew word for name and the Hebrew word for ointment is just... uh, the, the, the word in Hebrew for ointment uh, is from the root of name. And so the whole intent is that name is a beautiful thing. But some have tarnished names. And he said, Solomon said, that a good name is better than precious ointment. We, we think about, now uh, for those of you who hate history, listen to what you're fixing to hear. Tell me, those who are like me, who appreciate history, tell me uh, someone that is famous for uh, not just dying, but serving their country uh, and serving very faithfully that has a really good name that still stands out in history. Throw a name out. Elvis. Did somebody really say Elvis? Was that... Michael Smith? Listen, let me, let me clarify something. 
And, and we may have to have an altar call at this juncture of this service. This morning, the illustrious Michael Smith brought me a Diet Coke. Now, everybody knows a Diet Coke's better than a regular Coke. But it was polluted in the fact, he, he said, I had to get this for you. He breaks it. I was thrilled to death. He said a Diet Coke, cold Diet Coke on my, on my desk. And he spun it around, and it had four of the ugliest letters. I cannot believe that the, the FA, uh, FCC would allow this language on a Coke bottle, but it said F-O-R-D, Ford. And I had to get that thing off my desk. I took it and put it in the refrigerator. Everybody knows a Chevrolet's better than a Ford. Everybody. And if you don't, there's grace and mercy in heaven. It's all in a name. What's in a name? Audie Murphy. Irvin, that's the one my dad taught me. And I got to go to his, his gravesite, and he's buried at Arlington at the very top. Audie Murphy is still to this day the highest decorated uh, person to ever serve. Tevin, he tried to join the Marine Corps, and they said he was too small. He wasn't big and tough like you. Uh, but he was a little bit short run. You know, do you know what branch he served in? He was in the Army, but do you know, do you know who he was attached to? Walk out the front door and look to the southwest or southeast. He was third ID. You look at the famous pictures of him with his Congressional Medal of Honor and everything, you can see the third ID stripe. Audie Murphy, but he didn't die in battle. Ended up being a movie star, of all things, but a very great and famous soldier. There's others that laid their life down to serve their country. Let me, let me ask you, what's in a name? Have you ever heard the statement, if you do something bad, your name will be Mud. Do you know why they say that? Dr. Mud. Dr. Mud. And where, when was he a doctor? During the end of the Civil War. John Wilkes Booth had just shot Lincoln. And as he fled and tried to get up with his little band of, of misfit toys... He, when he jumped out off the balcony and landed on the stage, when he hollered uh, his, his uh, Latin phrase for uh, the tyrannical government he believed was there, he broke his leg. And so he got on his horse, took off, and unbeknownst to Dr. Mudd, here was the assassin who had just killed the president. And so he treated him and not long after John Wilkes Booth left, the Union soldiers and investigators came up on Dr. Mudd's house and they asked him, did you treat this guy? And they arrested him and was going to try him for treason. And though they eventually found him not guilty and that he had no part of the conspiracy, he was always synonymous with the assassination and the rendering aid to the guy that killed Lincoln. And from that day forward, his name was a name that was derided. And so it was known that if you really, really do bad, your name will be Mud. 
Do you know anybody that names their boy Judas? How about Benedict? Benedict Arnold is known in American history as being a traitor with the British government, being a spy on the country he said he was fighting for. These are names synonymous with what? Treason. Terrible behavior. No ethics, no morality. The one that literally gave Jesus a deceitful kiss. But let me ask you about some other names. Graham. What, what do you think about with that name? Billy Graham. And what do you think of with that name? Soul winner. Evangelist. What about Lottie? Missions. Someone who poured their life out. What about Annie? What about Spurgeon? What about Mother Teresa? What about Moody? Great names. Names of men and women who literally poured their life out to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's in a name? First of all, I want to go through a few betters in these ten verses. A better name is better. He said it's better than what? Even the most beautiful smelling perfume. A name is better. Do you know in a name is our reputation? And from that reputation, it's built on our character. You can Listen to me. You can act one way on Sunday and a different way Monday through Saturday, but you will not fool anybody. You know the only person you'll fool? Yourself. Your spouse knows who you are. Your children, I don't care if they're four years old, they know who you are because they tell their Sunday school teachers who you are. <laughs> and you know what's amazing? I hear parents, a child does something, says something that is absolutely appalling, whether it's a, a, a filthy word or, or a racial remark or something, and the parent in the public eye says, where did you learn that? And he said, Daddy says it. And then the horrific look of blood draining out of the parent's face when that child is honest and says, come from you. People are watching our character. And from that character, there's either virtue or the lack thereof. And when there's virtue, there will be morality. And when there's morality, there will be a true biblical ethic about us. And when that happens, listen to me, the greatest thing that you can be known for is being grace-filled. That you remember God loved you so much, He saw you in the depth and depravity of your sin and forgave you. And therefore, you forgive others because he said so. But because you've experienced grace. Anybody here ever not sinned? That's terrible English, but you get my point. Anyone? I'll take, I mean, we'll wait for you to think about it. I fail the grace of God every day. I'm not spirit-filled. I get hot-headed about something or lack of patience or whatever it may be, envy, strife, lack of faithfulness, lack of prayer devotion, whatever it may be, I fail the grace of God every day. 
how dare I try to stand and browbeat or try to convince someone they need to get right with God and do it in such a way that it's a Jonah mentality. You remember what Jonah did? Jonah said, you better get right or God's going to destroy this place. And lo and behold, they got right. It's the only preacher I know just about that's ever gave an invitation the altars filled up and he got mad about it. He did. He got so mad when God didn't strike the death blow. And he pouted. He said, God, make it rain. God says, why, Jonah? Do you not forget? Do you not remember the grace I gave you on that boat? How many of us have forgotten the grace God's given us? How many of us? I do. And it's the most embarrassing thing. And you know what? The world sees that in a Christian. They see a judgmental, legalistic attitude, and they say, why do I want to be part of that? When what, and I'm not saying we okay sin. We've got to preach sin. We've got to preach hell hot and heaven's real. But we do it from the vantage point and the perspective. Hey, I've been there. Let me tell you what God did for me. I was on my way to hell. I was damned to an eternal separation from God. But God in his infinite love and mercy sent Jesus to die for me. That's a good name. That's a good name. Do you know you're, you basically have three names in this life? And I'm not talking about your surname, your first name, middle name. I was pretty surprised yesterday during graduation. Ethan wasn't the only person that had four names. There was two other guys. But I'm not talking about those names. There is that name, the name that your parents give you. And then, anybody have a nickname? Your brothers or anybody called you? That you're not ashamed to say it out loud? What? Munchie. What? I do. I, I know your real name, but I know you as Munchie. That's just what we know. Yesterday when Ethan walked across and got it, I said, way to go, boo. I called him boo when he was little. Now, I, ain't, I don't hardly ever, ever call him that anymore. But it's just the fact of him going across, and that's my little boy. And it was nobody else called him that but me. There's, there's the name your parents give you, and then there is what other people call you. But listen, this is the part that makes your name beautiful. It's the name that you earn yourself. It's the good name. It's not Matt or Mike or Tom or Tim or Sarah or Ann. It's the name of, hey... You know, so-and-so, they're real. They, they don't just preach Jesus, they live Jesus. They don't just go to church. They, they, they live it every day. They're consistent. They're the same. Ups, downs, hills, and valley. Great song, Eli. Because that is where we've got to live. Because there's days where we're on the mountaintop. Then there's the days where we're in the valleys. But when we grow in grace to where people see and they know us for being consistent in the grace that we've received, that's a better name. A better name than 
the most beautiful of perfumes. Verse 2, he says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Notice what he said. It's better to go to the house of mourning. This word house in the original language literally means palace or castle. He's saying there's a better home. First of all, listen to what he says. We understand the temporary nature of this world. It is better to go to the house of mourning. When you think of the house of mourning, what do you think about? Funeral home? That's why we call it a home, funeral home. Nobody lives there unless they got a place upstairs. People don't live there. People are dead there. They're not alive there. But it's called a funeral home. And we go in and we visit. We say, oh, don't they look good? We sign the book. We sit in the chapel. But it shows us the temporary nature of life. That life is just a vapor that comes and vanishes away. We understand. He said a better home is one who understands this is not all there is. He's already told us, and he'll tell us again, we build our house, somebody else will live in it. The home I grew up in houses an ambulance service now. And my grandparents' house right next door has a beauty salon in it. And the old, what we called the little house, which was a two-room uh, reverse board and batten side, just old uh, slats around the outside, no insulation. That's where my daddy was born. And we'd play in it, and my granddaddy was a pack rat, and he piled everything in. They just bulldozed it, and it's all paved now. All that's gone. And one day, all of us will be gone if the Lord had not come back. And somebody else will be living in our house, or they will have bulldozed it. For progress or will have rotted down we must understand this is not all there is we build our kingdoms and we want it all to be just what we want it to be but we're never satisfied he said better is it to have a home of mourning to understand he said it's not He's not trying to say it's better to be sad and miserable than to be happy and joyous. He's saying it's better to understand this world's not all there is. People are going through life and they ignore the obvious. I mean, you can't hardly ride a few miles without going by a cemetery. Churches used to always have them. I'm glad we don't. But they're everywhere. They've got them above ground, below ground, whatever. And yet people go through life. They don't want to talk about life insurance. They don't want to talk about burial plots. They don't want to talk about funerals. They don't want to talk about any of that. But he said a home of mourning. One who understands this is not all there is, is a better home. Because, listen, we grasp the nature and the need of eternal glory. If this is not all there is, listen to me. If this is not all there is, 
then what else is there? There's heaven. Y'all believe in heaven? I'm talking about real heaven. I'm talking about where God sits on the throne. I'm not talking about pie in the sky, little flighty, fat, naked baby angels uh, where it's just, you know, a big cloud fest and, and there's just these big gaudy, you know, gold-covered mansions. I'm going to tell you. I'm talking about heaven where it's so real and the joy is unspeakable. We can't even fathom. That really is real. And when we see that, then we understand this life is full of mourning and full of sorrow, yet we grasp the nature and the need of eternal glory. And when we say, hey, I need Jesus. This is not all there is. I need to know that I know that I'm going to glory. When you get it, you'll want everybody around you to have it. When's the last time you stopped? really considered your lost loved ones. And I'm talking about considered it enough that you prayed for them by name and then prayed if there was an opportunity God used you to share your faith with them. Usually it's when somebody's diagnosed with a terminal illness. Usually it's when things are really rough. Somebody gets locked up. They call the preacher. Can you go down there and see them when, when you know there's a divorce or when they flunked out of school or but the problem is what Solomon's trying to tell us. When we don't look at the eternal nature of things and we just go through life clicking our heels down the yellow brick road and everything's great and wonderful. We're making a lot of money. We're taking a lot of trips and it's summertime and we're skiing and we're laying out on the beach and we're eating out and we're doing all this stuff. We don't think about eternal matters that, you know what? People will die this summer and go to hell if they don't know Jesus. We must grasp the nature and need of eternal glory. That's a better home. A home where we establish, listen, playing is good in its time, but there's a time to understand the matters of eternity. Teach our kids that sin is bad and that we all do it. And that our kids are not perfect. Our kids are not perfect. You were not perfect. Your parents are not perfect. Your grandparents were not perfect. Jesus was. Jesus is. We must teach them a need for that. And I'm going to tell you, there's a sorrow in our sin in our home when we understand our desperate need, but God brings that joy in the morning. There's a better emotion. Look in verse 3. Yea, better is he that both they... I'm, that's chapter 4. Chapter 7. Sorrow is better than laughter. Now, I'm going to be honest, Jerry. That was hard for me to comprehend because I like to laugh and have a good time. I even laugh at your silly jokes sometimes because they're better than my silly jokes. It's a better heart. He's not saying don't have fun. He's not saying don't laugh. And enjoy. But what he is saying, sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. It's a better emotion. It's listen to me, it's silliness versus seriousness. And it's okay to be silly 
Larry was silly all the time, wasn't he? Silly songs with Larry. Y'all never watch Veggie Tales? It's okay to be silly every once in a while. To laugh at yourself. We, some of us take ourselves way too serious. Way too serious. I'm going to tell you, we're all a joke. All of us are a joke. But the truth is, he's saying, there's a time to be seriousness. And, and the difference, he's saying, is the superficial silliness that does not give any root, it does not really give a full nourishment. He's talking about the seriousness of the soul. It's a better emotion. Times when we get serious with God. Tell me, was it when everything was going right that you experienced God the most or when God really put a burden and brokenness in your heart that you had to rush the altar and pray, oh dear God, I need a touch. Not because you were physically ill or anything else, but just God overwhelmed you. You don't have to come to the altar just because you feel the depth of your wretchedness, but because you just have a deep burning desire to be closer with the Lord. That's when God works in our lives. In the seriousness of the soul, it's, it's literally saying fiction versus fact. Now, I've always been an autobiography, nonfiction reader. I've never cared a bit about fiction. The only thing fictional I've enjoyed in my life just about is the Avengers and all that kind of stuff. I, I like all that stuff. I love Transformers, except for the last one. It was pitiful. But I, I, I like that, but I like real, okay? I like to read something where I know it really happened. Well, there's a time for silliness, but there's a time that we need to understand fact is always better than fiction. Jesus is not fiction, church. Jesus really is alive. He really did come to this earth, really born of a virgin, really lived without sin, really died on the cross, and really resurrected from the dead. And he really did it so that you can really know that you're really saved. That's real. That's fact. It's not fiction. All the scientists and atheists say, oh, but there's no, there's no truth. There's no, you can't prove. I'm going to tell you, in the absence of the field, being able to put our hands on him, there's still more evidence of the resurrection than of the fact that Pilate lived. There's more eyewitnesses to the resurrection than there was that Nero served as Caesar. There's more evidence of a creator creating this world than there is of science proving the origin of species and Darwinian evolution. There's still more proof because science cannot overwhelm Scripture. The Bible stands on its own. And if you start to doubt that, then Satan's got a foothold in your life. It's a better emotion. You ever known people that you never knew what you were going to get? They're either going to be on their highest of highs or lowest of lows. He said a better emotion is to be grounded in the seriousness of life, but with joy in your heart. 
Because he says in the latter part, not only is there a better emotion, first part of chapter 3, but later he says, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. How is our heart better? Because it becomes broken and burdened for others. And when we are truly broken and burdened for the lost, listen, there's not going to be any revival. People are not going to be saved. And can I go on and prophesy right now? Do you see this? What does that say? And what is that for? What does all this mean? Vacation Bible school. It will be pomp and circumstance, and it will be an exercise in futility that we spend and waste our time and our effort and our money on coming up here Sunday through uh, Thursday night doing all of that nonsense if we don't go out with a burden and tell lost kids we love them and we want them to come. We can have 150 volunteers, but if we don't have any children, then we have wasted our time. We've wasted our time. When are we going to walk across the street? When are we going to stop at being afraid and go out? It's not just the youth department's job to go out and witness and invite people to come to Vacation Bible School. It's every single member. Senior adults, you are not removed from your obligation to be a soul winner to lead kids to Christ. You don't have to teach it. Michelle's going to direct it. We've got teachers in every class, but you can and you ought to, and you are expected to go out and invite somebody and do whatever it takes to get them here. Because when we are broken and burdened for our community, then there'll be a blessedness in our life, and we'll have a better heart for it. It's a better hearing. What? That's usually what goes on in my house. Huh? What? And the older I get, the machinery and the cotton mill and the saws and the loud music, I can't hear as good out of this ear. And I, I noticed it one day. I had my, my hand up, laying on the couch or something, and I noticed that if I held it across, I could hear my watch tick. But I could hold it right here, and I couldn't hear it tick in this ear. And... I, couldn't, I can't hear as good as I used to. And they'll say something to me. I'll say, do what? Listen. I say, I'm listening. I just can't hear. Talk to the good side. Well, he says in verses 5 through 7, it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression makes a wise man mad and a gift destroys the heart. Listen, it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Let me put this in perspective. A parent who expects you to do right and they're going to make you do right versus a yes man who tells you what you want to hear. That's, that's the contrast here. Do we have ears to hear as Jesus told the seven churches in Revelation? Because a better hearing means we're going to listen to learn. There's a thing in Deuteronomy 6 
the verses there in the, in the Jewish culture and religion, all Orthodox Jews has a plaque that says, the, it's called the Shema. And it is the first few verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it is literally God charging the, the children of Israel. And it says, hear me, O Israel. The word here in the Hebrew literally means listen to obey. It's not that, hey, when you're trying to tell your husband something, he says, yeah, 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 I hear you, I hear you. Well, he may hear you with his ears, but he don't hear you with his heart. And that goes the other way around, too. And I used to give my parents lip service. Yeah, yeah, I hear you, I hear you. Are we giving God lip service? Or are we listening to learn? Because in verse 6, he's telling us there's a difference between substance and noise. If it's just blam, blam, it sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. Just want, want, want. Let our words be few. Let our words be chosen. Let our words be clear, concise. And when we are given direction by someone that's trying to, I'm going to tell you, this is hard for me. Because I said, well, I'm this and I'm that and I don't need somebody to tell me this or that. Sometimes I do. And sometimes it comes from a 12-year-old. Or it comes from an 80-year-old. Doesn't matter who it comes from, if it's right rebuke, then I ought to be willing to listen to obey. Listen to learn, but open to obey. It's blessing versus bribery. Look at verse 7. Surely, surely oppression makes a wise man mad and a gift destroys the heart. Don't let the world buy you off. Don't let the world buy you off with things. It's better to obey than our obligatory blessings of this world. It's bribery. It's bribery. We need to listen. What is God telling you to get rid of something that's clouding your life? You need to sell something. You need to do away with something that is taking up and has become a God in your life. Maybe it's a relationship that needs to be terminated. There needs to be something. You're not tithing. You're not giving sacrificially. It may be something you bought that thought you thought, or you even tried to bargain with God. Hey, if I get this, then I'll do all this other stuff. But you haven't followed through. Bribery is never better than blessing. It's always better to listen, to learn, and open to obey and hair, a bunch of noise. There's a better time. He said in verse 8, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. If you've ever built a house and finished it, you believe in this scripture. <laughs> now, I always love to break ground. Now, I'll be honest with you. There's something thrilling in, in me when, when, I, when I see the lot pushed out and that truck backs up and drops that framing package. And that concrete truck, and I mean, concrete's hitting the ground. Man, I, I'm pumped. I can smell that lumber. I, I'm like, it's fixing to happen. It's on. Then, you know, pour the footings or pour slab and you frame it. And, and 
man, it just happens in a matter of days, does it? I mean, if you've ever been around, just like, oh, it's so exciting, it's moving so fast. You're like, I'm going to be moving in in like two weeks. And then they put that last roofing shingle on, and it's like we hit reverse warp speed. And everything just looks like it just stops because now we got to wire it and they got to run plumbing and got to run HVC, all the mechanicals. And then you've got to do all this other stuff. And then you've got to uh, put sheetrock and then you got to put three coats of mud on it. And then you got to sand and it just drags, it drags. And then finally, all that's done and they paint and they start trimming. And then all of a sudden, they're putting cabinets and appliances and then it speeds up again. And then they're like, hey, we're going to be ready. We're going to do punch out next week. Oh, it's so exciting. Now, overlay that in our lives. So often in our Christian walk, we, we get saved, we get baptized, we're on fire for God. But then the storms of life slows us down. And we become mired up in the tedious things that take a little longer because the, the more you grow, the deeper you'll grow. And the deeper you go, the harder it's going to be to dig. Y'all understand what I'm telling you? you? You can't just study the superficial things of the Word. you got to dig deep. Study deep. I remember when I first came, Joe Ellen's Sunday school class and I think Miss Michelle's class, they were going over the names of God and I thought, for this age, Man, that's deep. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. When you start understanding what Jehovah Rapha means, that he's the God of all healing, when you start understanding what Jehovah Jireh and Nissi and all the other names, and then you start understanding the difference between Elohim, Jehovah, Yahweh, all of those things, you're understanding that every Hebrew name that starts with El is saying something about God, you start going deeper. And then you start realizing, you know, the Bible's a lot deeper than Jonah and the whale, Noah and the ark, and Daniel and the lion's den. There's deep things. Then you start embracing the book of Leviticus because you know without the book of Leviticus, Hebrews means nothing. And without Daniel and Ezekiel, Revelation is just fiction. Because without the Old Covenant, there cannot be a New Covenant. Without the Old Testament, there is no New. Without Moses and Joseph, then you don't have the true Savior who paid it all. But He did. And He does. The long haul is always better than the shortcut. If it's worth doing, then it's worth doing right. And sometimes that takes time, doesn't it? It takes time. We must not try to take a shortcut in our own lives or in our church's lives. Listen, a better spirit, he said in the latter part of verse 8, better is the end of that thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Patience simply means we're going to take a deep breath and pray about it. Have you ever heard this statement? Pray until something happens. Well, what do you do in the meantime? I don't know about you, but I want to do something. I do. I want, I want, hey God, can we at least have snacks? 
in my spiritual walk here. I, I love that statement because it speaks so much to me. And I can literally see it. Until God opens the door, praise him in the hallway. Because let me be real honest with you. In life, walking with the Lord, you're going to spend more time in the hallway than you are walking through doors. Enjoy the trip. Praise him in the hallway. Grow. Just pause right there between doors and be patient. And how do we do it? We pray. That's what patience is. It's saying, God, help me not move until you move me. May I not speak until you speak to me. May I not act until you direct. It's a better spirit when we have a patient, praying spirit. I'll tell you, I, I'm spontaneous. I told the pastor search to me that when they hired me. I'm not, I, I'm a broad stroke guy. And Beck, when Becky and I built a few houses together, I'll never forget, we'd frame it. And the walls would be framed with no sheetrock or anything on it. And she would walk in to like our master bedroom. And I'd say, well, this is going to be this. And, she's, and, and it used to irritate me. As bad as it irritated her, I think. She said, I just don't see it. I said, how can you not see it? The wall's right there. You can't see it. But we operate differently. That side of her brain don't work. The side of her brain that works is facts and figures and, hey, we got to have this amount. This is what we got. And this is the way we got to. We got to get a draw for this and we got to pay this. She does all that. My, that side of my brain don't work. I do words. She does numbers. And that's the way we work together, ain't that right? But then they'd put sheetrock up. She said, I still don't see it. I said, at this point, I don't care if you see it or not. It is what it is. And when we get there, you, and then she, we put up some paint. I start trimming. And she said, oh, that's like, I've been trying to tell you that for three months. She couldn't see it at that point. But you know what? She was patient, usually. Sometimes. She said, I'm just going to have to trust you with it. I said, yep. Because it is what it is. The wall's up and I'm not changing it. And she'd be patient. I'm sure she prayed a lot about it. But she relied on me because that's what I did for a living. When we pay the bills, all that, that's what she does. And so I rely on her. Well, let me ask you, can any of you let me just be real biblical. I'm about done. Listen to me. Can any of you change the spots on a leopard? Can you number, I'm not being funny now, I'm being biblical. Can you number the hairs of your head? The Bible says none of us can do that. Do you know exactly how long you'll live? You know there's a, there's a, app that you can literally type in Google and say, when am I going to die? Yeah. <laughs> I did it. Because I find it pretty hilarious. And you'll have to fill out information. Do you smoke? When were you born? Where did you live? And you know, based on an algorithm, you know, based on statistics, because there are statistics. There are mathematical uh, equations that you can figure 
People in certain regions of the world, third world countries, die at an earlier age than Americans. And for many years, from 1900 until about two years ago, the average age of men and women dying continually went up until about two years ago. And it slipped just a little bit. And the average age, 1900, for an American male, the average life expectancy overall was 47 years old. Two years ago, it was 79.80. It increased that much. Women always outlive men on average. Then why does a 32-year-old woman die of breast cancer? Why does a 23-year-old boy get killed in a car wreck? Because God doesn't operate by statistics. Here's the deal. You can Google all you want. You can look up every death clock. You can consult every, every seer and horoscope in the world. And nobody but God knows your end. Nobody. So he said, embrace it. Understand it. Live in the joy of the Lord through reliance on God. He said right there in the latter part of verse 8, the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. When we have a reliance on God, we trust Him. We trust Him today. We trust Him tomorrow. We'll trust Him the next day. Then, verse 10. A better today. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou do not, dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Do you know what he just said? He said, enjoy today, because usually our memory is not that good of yesterday. We call it the good old days. The good old days. How many of you were raised in a house without a dishwasher? Raise your hand. How many wish you still lived in a house without a dishwasher? How many of you, and I'm not trying to embarrass her, I want young people to see this. How many of you were raised without indoor plumbing? And that meant you didn't have a restroom in your house. You had to go outside to use restroom. Raise them up. Now, I, young people, look. Now, how many of you are glad you got a bathroom in your house? What's so good about the old days? There are some good things. The simplicity of it. Right? I like two-lane roads a lot better than eight-lane expressways. Except when I need to get somewhere fast. But they don't build the lanes quick enough. Atlanta needs 12 lanes and they'll only build six. And so oh, we're improving it. By the time it's done, it's already antiquated. Bad memories of yesterday means you ought to enjoy today. I've had several speak very kind words. This morning, they're like, well, did it go good yesterday? I said, yeah, they gave him a diploma. It can't get much better than that. He's graduated. I mean, that. they said, hey, take him home. You can't bring him back. I said, are you sad? Are you? No, I'm not. And, and, and I don't mean any disrespect, but hear my intent right here. I get it. I really get it. Because now, 
not only do we have our own memory, but we've got our artificial intelligence memory that pops up of our, our, our memory of the day from six years ago, nine years ago, and it's bringing back. Some of it I don't want to remember. You know, and I'm like, how can I get rid of block, delete, you know? They say, oh, but you're fixing to be emptiness and all. You know what? Parents will post a picture of their child, and they're four years old, and say, oh, where's the time going? I get that. Please, time, slow down. Can't they just stay small? They can if you etch it on their gravestone. Or they can grow up and be everything you're praying for them to be. And you can rejoice in that. Mike, it's a pretty proud moment when you walk your daughters down the aisle, I can imagine. To have daughters like yours that are godly, who are leading in church, and to see grandchildren. All of you others, you know what I'm talking about. When you see the evidence that, hey, it's all right to say, I did it right. It's okay. It's okay. It's not, it's not pride and arrogance to say, I followed the Lord. It's not wrong to do that. Not to be the right kind of proud, where he said, I raised them in the nurture and admonition. Thank you, God, for what you've given me. Amen. Live today. Not the bad memory of yesterday. Or it's amazing our vivid imagination. Me and Dalton and a few of us were sitting around the supper table last night talking about glory days. Uh, football and baseball and basketball and middle school and high school and best best games and times of other things that we'll just keep to ourselves. But we talked about it. But you know what? When we got done, Dalton, you tell me if I'm lying, we both agreed we wouldn't go back. We was glad where we're at now. We don't regret it. We enjoyed it. But we got a new day, right? We got a new day. I asked, I said, what's the best, best situation you had with any batter in high school? And you know what? He tried to remember. I said, well, I can tell you the best one I seen. It wasn't in high school. It was just a couple months ago where I saw you tune a boy up to the point that on that last pitch, you brought the sauce and struck him out looking. Wasn't no way he could catch up. What I'm saying is, look, you may not be able to throw an 86-mile-an-hour fastball. Your day may be gone. You may not be able to run as fast, jump as high as stuff, but you know, today is a good day. You know how I know it? Because you're breathing. You're in the house of God, and you're living in America where we can come and worship the Lord in freedom. As they come to the instruments. Are you living with this embellished memory? Oh, I used to be this, and I used to do that, but I can't do that stuff anymore, and so I'm just a waste. No. Your best days could be ahead of you. If you're willing to trust the Lord, live today. Put tomorrow Side, it'll be ready when you get there. And put yesterday where it belongs and live today.
Because Solomon said, I wasted it. Embrace what God's given you. Do not waste any more time. This altar is a place for all of us to come. He said, God, I don't want to waste my life anymore. Let me, let, I read this the other day. I thought it very, very truth-filled. You remember the prodigal son? Y'all remember him? You remember he said, Daddy, I want, I want what's mine. He literally is saying, Daddy, I want you dead. I want my inheritance now. I don't love you. Don't care about you. Don't care about my home. I want what's coming to me, and I can go do whatever I want. His dad gave it to him. And he went off, and what does it say he did with it? He wasted it on wild, riotous living. And so, where did he end up? In the hog pen. Taking what was left over when they slopped the hogs. Any of you ever slopped a hog? That's nasty. It's whatever's left a hog will eat. Anything. Throw it in a big, we, we, there's a big old, like just metal pan about that big. Every, every scrap, potato peelings, whatever went in to that, that thing. And that's what you'd slop the hogs with. He got what was left over. Now hear me. This is what I want you to hear. What if the local Baptist church would have ran down there and took him a sack lunch from McDonald's every day? And when his clothes got really bad, they went to the clothes closet and they gave him something. And they took him shopping, they cleaned him up, they got his hair cut, and got him, and they, because they didn't want him to be forgotten out there because he was pitiful. Would he have ever had a reason to go back home and get right with God? Now hear me. I'm not saying be mean. I'm not saying we're not going to give. We're not going to help. But sometimes we get, listen parents, when you run and scoop your kid up, whether they're 24 or 12, and try to rescue them and save them from what looks like impending doom, you may be getting in the way of God chastising them, trying to draw them back to him. It is the hardest thing to do as a parent is to let your children fail. But everybody has to fail to realize we can't do it alone. We cannot do it. We need a fresh touch from God, church. We need to enjoy today in Him and take the seriousness. Well, listen, we can have a silly, fun time when it's the right time, but we need to understand life's short. And tomorrow's not promised, but we have today. May we live in the power and authority. And we ought to be rushing the altar with tears flowing for our lost loved ones, our lost friends and neighbors. We need to be praying that Bible school be the greatest ever because Satan hates it. We need to pray that God guard our hearts and guard our lives. We need to come, give it all to him, and walk away from here having the greatest day of our lives. God will change your life. God will forgive you. But you've got to be willing in faith to come to him. Say, God, I need you. If that's your prayer, stand and come today.